As we saw last Sunday, Job was subjected to the second speech in this first cycle of speeches from his friends. The second speech comes from Bildad. And as one writer put it, I quoted this last Sunday, like a vulture descending on a lion's kill, Bildad now tears away at Job with accusations and seductions familiar to us from Eliphaz. We saw that uh, Bildad's thesis was found in verse number three of chapter eight, in which he argued that all God's ways are just. And he defends his position based on the wisdom of the elders, that is, on tradition and the various parables that they spoke from nature. For Bildad, as we saw, it's all black and white. There's no gray. It's all black and white. God rewards good people and he punishes bad people. He rewards the righteous and he punishes the wicked. And just a side note, like Eliphaz, he sort of twists the knife. I mean, it's not bad enough that he sort of stabbed his friend with this, this harsh response. But he twists the knife by using the deaths of Job's children to illustrate his point. Uh, Eliphaz blamed Job for the death of his children. Uh, in chapter 5, he said, I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly his house was cursed, his children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. Eliphaz says to Job, it's your fault. But Bildad actually says it's the children's fault. In chapter 8, verse 4, when your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. In other words, your kids got what they deserved. Again, quoting a writer, Rubbing fresh salt in a raw wound, Bildad pronounces the verdict that Job's children died for their sins as proof that God's justice operates on a straight line and without a twist. Bildad, it's all black and white. It's all cause and effect. They sinned. They died. In chapters 9 and 10, Job responds. You may recall earlier in the series that I said that in Job's answering his friends, we actually find him going on a pilgrimage of sorts. As his emotions are spiraling, he struggles to make sense of two things. First of all, his situation, but second of all, his faith in God. And so we find when he responds that oftentimes his responses have two parts. First, he responds to his friends, uh, and then he confronts God. In, in this answer, in chapters 9 and 10, in chapter 9, he talks about God in the third person. So we assume he's talking to his friends. But in chapter 10, Job will address God directly. In looking at this part of Job, I think it's more helpful if... Well, let me start over. We're studying the book of Job as it is presented to us. We have first the outburst from Job, and then Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad speaks, Job responds. Zophar speaks, Job responds. And so that's how we're studying it. But it is helpful, I think, if we look at Job's responses uh, in a, as a part of a continuum. It is part of a pilgrimage. And so rather than sort of saying, well, this is what Bildad said and this is what Job said, I think it's helpful to look at what Job said first and now what he says second to compare and contrast his responses. And in fact, one commentator uh, has organized his commentary on the book of Job. It's, it's rather difficult to study, uh, but one chapter is Job's friends speak. Another chapter is Job responds. And so he puts all of Job's responses together and, 
it is in many ways very helpful. And so we are studying it the way it is written, but we will, in fact, compare the second answer of Job's to his first. In his first speech, Job was angry. I mean, if there's one word that you could boil down his first response, his response to Eliphaz, the word would be anger. He was angry at his friends. He was angry at God. But here in the second speech, if there is one word that describes it, it is the word despair. He has moved from anger to despair. And so there's a difference, a sudden reversal in tone. In the first response, Job is somewhat sarcastic uh, in his responses uh, to Eliphaz. Uh, there's deep, bitter sarcasm. Now, there is concession. And so if you look at the second verse, uh, Job begins by saying, indeed, I know that this is true. And he's thinking a bit more rationally now. He's not simply responding emotionally with this sarcasm. He, he is, in fact, now engaging intellectually with what Bildad has said. In the first speech, Job responded, I think, emotionally. Now he responds logically or based on logic. And so we get a sense of a man who has sort of has spoken his piece in terms of anger and has stepped back a bit. And having stepped back, uh, he's taking a clearer look, a more reasoned look at the issue of God's justice and man's righteousness. But what we find is his anger has given way to a sense of helplessness. One writer puts it, Job survived the raving of his emotions. Can he survive the logic of his despair? Uh, Job is in deep despair. But also argue that as Job answers here in chapter 9, he's not simply speaking to Bildad. He's speaking to Eliphaz and Bildad. He's sort of hitting them both at the same time. And what he does is he says, okay, boys, if you guys are right, Eliphaz, you have mentioned God's holiness, uh, his power. Bildad, you've talked about his justice and his wisdom. Okay, let's take these all the way to their logical conclusions. And if what you're saying is true, what may we conclude? What are the implications of God's power and God's wisdom for my situation? If you wish, Job puts it this way. God is so great. Uh, man's righteousness is so weak. Therefore, God and man cannot be reconciled. We are simply too far apart for there to be any reconciliation. Job in this chapter, in the, these two chapters, is not so emotional. He's much more cold-blooded. He's very logical in his presentation. But as a result of answering his friends he arrives at another dead end in his search for answers. In chapter 9, which we will look at today, his quest for answers, and then in chapter 10, his confrontation with God as he complains about his situation. Let's read the first four verses as we begin. Then Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? Job begins by acknowledging that what his friends have said about God is true. That God is powerful. That God is just. God is wise. And 
all-powerful. He begins by restating Eliphaz's thesis, how can a mortal be righteous before God? But it, comes, it becomes clear, as Job speaks at the beginning of the chapter, that in order to prove his innocence, he has to choose, or there are two ways in which he can settle this issue. The first is to go to court. And in the ancient world, when two parties had an argument and they would go to court, the winner was the one who could argue his position convincingly. Someone who could refute his adversary persuasively. And do it so effectively that the adversary was reduced to silence. That they would say, there's nothing I can say. You, you win. I, I have nothing in which, with which to respond. That was one way they settled things in the ancient world. Another way that they did it, amazingly enough, was by wrestling. Uh, they actually had a formal system of wrestling, uh, which they had wrestling belts, almost like the sumo wrestlers of today. And whoever won the wrestling match was the winner that he had proved that he was in the right all along and he was able to prove it by winning the wrestling match. Something that we find in the Middle Ages revived where, where might is right, where people would battle to the death and whoever won, they were in the right. And whoever lost, they must have been wrong. Job realizes in either scenario going to court or in a wrestling match, if the opposition, if the party of the second part is God Almighty, what hope does Job have? In a legal dispute, he says, though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. Job says, if I go to court with God, what can I say? I, I can't answer him. Well, what if they do a wrestling match? Well, his power is vast. And in verses 5 through 13, uh, we have what is actually a, a, quite an amazing and a beautiful doxology, a, a hymn of praise to God for who God is, as Job describes his power. Now, there is profound truth here. Follow along, if you would, as I read this, verse, beginning in verse 5. He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. In a series of staccato, of very sharp sentences, Job recites the power of God as seen in creation. That he moves mountains and overturns them in his anger. We saw this in Sunday school briefly, that mountains are symbolic of ancient times. Several times in, the, in Deuteronomy, for example, in the book of Genesis, mountains are not simply called mountains, but they are the ancient mountains. The things that were there before we were ever here. 
They are symbolic of antiquity and stability. Mountains stay, but God overturns them. He moves them. He shakes the earth and makes its pillars shake. The earth here is pictured as this huge house that is on pillars, and God shakes the pillars of the house of the earth. He speaks to the sun. It does not shine. And in the Old Testament, in ancient times, the loss of sunlight was seen as catastrophic. When the sun would refuse to shine, uh, this is the language of the apocalypse, the end of the world. And Job says, God speaks to the sun. This is how great his power is. And it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. Uh, God is seen here as being able to keep the stars from coming out at night. You cannot see their light. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the seas. And here I think Job is not speaking merely of God creating the world back at the beginning. But every day, uh, it's like stretching a canvas all over again. The psalmist refers to it as... Uh, Stretching out the heavens like a tent. Every day God stretches out the heavens for us to have light uh, in the daytime and to see the stars at night. And he walks on the waves of the sea. One is reminded of Jesus walking on the water and controlling the storm, saying, let there be peace. This is the power that God has. He goes on to say he is the maker of. Uh, of the Bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the south. And here, Job mentions four specific constellations. We're not completely clear. Uh, the Bear, many believe, is Ursa Major, the great bear that is found as one of the constellations. Pleiades, uh, which consists of seven stars. It's one of the brightest clusters of stars. Orion, a brilliant constellation of stars. And then... Uh, the southern constellation, we believe, may in fact be the southern cross. Uh, we're not quite sure, and that's why the translators have given it a literal rendering as, as constellations of the south. But the point is this, and it should be clear, that as amazing as these constellations are, and how they would guide sailors who would sail at night, God is the maker of them. God made these constellations. Job goes on to say he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. That is, God does amazing things that are beyond comprehension and beyond computation. Verse 12, no one can stop him. No one can say, hey, what are you, what are you doing over there? No one can stop him. In the words of the psalmist in Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. No one can stop him. And then we come to verse 13, which is for us a bit puzzling. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. Uh, Rahab was considered a female monster that lived in the depths of the sea. Uh, the male counterpart was Leviathan. And Leviathan we will find mentioned uh, in the book of Job. This is from ancient mythology that pagans, those who do not believe in the true God, believed that there were this male and female monsters in the deep and they had great power. They are mentioned in the Old Testament not as though they actually existed, but that they represent that which stands in opposition to God. Chaos in the face of God's order. And here we are told chaos bows before God. God rules all things. 
even when our way of thinking we can't see the order to it, God is the one in control. And then Job, in this, in this passage, says, okay, this is who God is, and, and, and how, how exactly do we relate to this God? We are told that his, his uh, wonders cannot be fathomed or his miracles be counted. But if you look in verse number 11, when he passes, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. We can see the things he does, but we, we can't touch him. We can't feel him. We can't perceive him. We can't sense him. And in verse 12, we can't question him. The only appropriate reaction is to fall prostrate at his feet, as did Rahab and her cohorts. So, if Job is going to go to court or somehow try to reach a resolution with God based on the issue of strength, he has no hope whatsoever. Before the mighty power of Almighty God, Job can feel only despair. I think it's worth remembering that we need to remind ourselves that at the time that Job lived, as best we can tell, they didn't have the law. They didn't have the Bible. Jesus had not yet come into the world. The way that they knew of God was through his creation. And what Paul tells us uh, in Romans chapter 1 is that when people look at creation, they see two things about God, his power and his nature. His divine nature. For, for Job, it is God's power and his wisdom. When he looks at creation, and Eliphaz and Bildad have told him as much, God is all-powerful and God is all-wise. And Job is saying, if that's true, then I'm in serious trouble. Because these qualities are unreachable and they are overwhelming. So Job simply follows it out. Eliphaz, if you're right, if God is so powerful, Bildad, if you're right, God is so wise, my conclusion is this. I have no hope. There is no hope for me at all. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Let's read it as as Job asks these questions, beginning in verse 14. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it is a matter of justice, who will summon him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Verse 19 sums up Job's conclusion. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who will summon him to court? The gap between the all-powerful and all-wise God and weak and ignorant human beings is simply too great. It would be, I think in uh, the words of some Proverbs, it would be a flea wrestling 
with an elephant. And it's even vaster than that. In a confrontation between the two parties, man has no hope at all. Whether he is righteous or wicked. And this is something I find very interesting that that Job says. What I read in verse 22. If you go back there. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he he blindfolds its its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Job says, the way I see it, boys, Eliphaz and Bildad, based on your argument, I come to one of two conclusions based on my situation. Either God is too far to really be concerned about such things. In, in modern terms, in light, terms of the Enlightenment, he's a deistic God. He made the world. He sort of wound it up like a big clock. And he's just kicking back. And every once in a while, he just sort of lets loose a little anger, just sort of lets loose a little frustration. And it catches everybody, uh, good people, bad people. You know, and, and really, he's just sort of back there and, and really not too concerned. He wields his power without discrimination. That's one possibility, Eliphaz and Bildad, if what you're saying is true. The other possibility is that God is the devil himself. Someone who laughs or who mocks the despair of the innocent. You see, human attempts to understand suffering while still believing in God always seem to fall into the same trap. If you deny the existence of God, then suffering can be explained away. Because you simply say it's all chance. We live in a world of random chance and it's just a luck of the draw or the unlucky draw. And that's why these things have happened to you. But if you say, I believe that God exists, and you look at the suffering in your life or in the lives of others, then you really face a dilemma. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, when he talks about the death of his wife, he said, The real danger of coming to believe such dreadful things is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. In other words, he wasn't afraid of that. But, so this is what God's really like. When we deal with suffering and we hold on to the reality of God, we're shocked. and It's like holding on to two electrical wires. And, and we're tempted to let go of one or the other. And many people let go of the one that says that God exists. Many people who survived the Holocaust, who went into the camps, devout Jews, came out atheists. They could not reconcile how God would allow them to suffer such things. The the alternative, if we follow a purely logical methodology, is to say that, yeah, God is there and he's not very nice. As one philosopher put it, If there is a God, then he must be the devil. Human reasoning can never adequately explain suffering. And Job is a human being, and he is not able to explain it either. 
In verses 25 through 31, Job once again deals with the reality of his suffering. But now I think he deals more with the psychological aspect of his suffering. Look, if you would, beginning in verse 25. My days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. They skim past like boats of papyrus, like eagles swooping down on their prey. In other words, time is just flying. Verse 27. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will change my expression and smile. In other words, I'll put on a happy face. I still dread all my sufferings, for I know you will not hold me innocent. Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I washed myself with soap and my hands with washing soda, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. Verse 32. He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. Job says, listen, my adversary, this my opponent, is someone stronger than me, someone wiser than me. And you know what? Even if I try to put on a happy face and grin and bear it, he's going to wipe me out. On the one side, we have the transcendent holy God, all-powerful, all-wise. And then on this side of the gap, you have humanity, which is relatively impotent and ignorant. And there's this gap between, and this God over here seems to send trouble over to this side. And, and, and how do we somehow come together and reason and make sense of this? Verse 33, Job proposes possible solution if only there were someone to arbitrate between us to lay his hand upon us both someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more then I would speak up without fear of him but as it now stands with me I cannot Job says the only possibility of reconciliation is to have a mediator, to have an arbitrator between the two parties. Someone who can bridge the chasm, the gap between all-powerful, all-wise God and impotent, ignorant humanity. We know now what Job did not know then. That this gap has in fact been bridged by the Lord Jesus Christ. And not simply when he died on the cross, but I would argue that in our everyday lives, Christ bridges this gap. Jesus stands in the gap of irreconcilable differences, differences that cannot be reconciled. Listen, if he can reconcile the Almighty with humanity, then he can reconcile any party. Today we remember the death of Jesus as we remember him in the Lord's Supper. And we need to remember him as the arbitrator, as the mediator, as the one that Job was looking for, someone to stand in between the gap, someone who could put a hold, a hand on God and a hand on Job. And that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul told Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But we need to understand that he not simply 
he doesn't simply reconcile God with man. That is the beginning of the process. Do you remember what God told Adam and Eve when they sinned? The day you sin, the day you eat of this, you will surely die. And they didn't physically die that day, but the process of death and the reality of death came into the world on a number of levels. First of all, social death. Social relationships were broken apart. Adam and Eve, who had been, they were husband and wife, and they had been naked before each other and felt no shame. Suddenly, they feel ashamed and they cover themselves up. So a gap has developed between them, a social death. And then there's a psychological death because when Adam heard God's voice, he became afraid. And fear is when there is a gap in our thinking. It is psychological death. And then there was spiritual death, man from God. There's also ecological death. Now we are no longer in harmony with nature. Nature resists us. Nature has been cursed because of our sin. And the death of Christ reconciles us to God, which begins a process of reconciliation across the board, bringing people together. And the church is to be the pilot plant there, where people from all races and all creeds, both male and female, come together. It also brings psychological integration, psychological reconciliation. All of this. Because, as Job said, I need somebody to stand in the gap. An arbitrator, a mediator. And God has sent his son to do that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do not understand so often why you do things in our lives why you allow things to happen in the world why senseless violence seems to continue those who are undeserving seem to live well and those who seem more deserving struggle we do not know the answer to this but we know that you do we do know that we live in a world of death in which there is so much separation and we thank you for sending your son the Lord Jesus Christ to bring harmony, to bring peace to bring reconciliation that he was willing to suffer and die to spill his blood that the separations of this world could be done away with that there could be reconciliation and today, as we remember his death, may we hold on to not only the fact that we are reconciled to you, but that you call us to be reconciled to all, that we are to bring your peace into this world. We pray this in Jesus' name.
The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Stand together, please, and sing the doxology. that we have men's and women's meeting after the service today. Uh, we'll be having lunch together and then meeting separately afterwards. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.